Good morning, everybody. Welcome back into the Mining Stock Daily Friday Long Form episode, where we publish the last episode of the week to get you into the last day of trading and into the weekend. Uh, it's also quarter end, and holy smokes, what a volatile three quarters it has been all around. Who better to help us wrap up Q3 better than Tony Greer of The Navigator? Uh, a lot of open-ended conversations of what we're seeing in markets. Not only, I mean, precious metals and resources is one thing, but why the bond market has just been wreaking havoc all through global markets. It's one great conversation to have. Uh, we then turn to David Fitch, new guest to the podcast, trying to spend a lot more time discussing specifically gold and gold miners. Are they now investable? Is it a contrarian look at bidding for the gold miners given how beat up they are so just two great conversations i hope you can listen to both of them in their entirety special thank you to integra gold arizona sonoran copper western copper and gold and rio 2 for your continued support of the podcast if you have any questions shoot me an email everybody trevor at clearcreekdigital.com we put out i think like 16 17 episodes this week a lot of corporate updates so again any follow-ups should send them my way so let's get to tony tg telling us what we need to know have a great weekend everybody be well Hey everybody, welcome into the Friday long-form episode here on Mining Stock Daily. Uh, here's a conversation I have been really looking forward to having, uh, not only because every time Tony Greer and I get a chance to talk, uh, you know, we solve all the world's problems. I think that's uh, fair to say, Tony. <laughs> uh, but uh, listen, I think it's also fair to say that we've got quite a shitstorm in front of us here in financial markets. <laughs> that is amazing, Trevor. I enjoyed seeing the look on your face when you said that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, as, as, um, as I go back and forth with, you know, a lot of super experienced people that I'm speaking to during this, nobody's seen anything like this before once again, right? So no matter how many decades of experience you have, nobody has the experience of having like five tail events colliding in one week and washing across the tape. And we had, you know, we had the Pompeii moment in the UK guilt market where the Bank of England had to step in and start buying them because liquidity was going to zero. And I think that that changed the face of everything, quite honestly, in the short term going forward. I see quite a few macro reversals on the screens. For example, you know, dollar, uh, dollar versus yuan was bid only for, geez, about a month. And that stopped on a dime and reversed. Um, cable reverse, the euro reverse, those are both bouncing now very sharply versus the dollar. I reckon that once the spillover effects wash through the equity market, that we'd likely see a bounce there before we see another push lower um, due to higher yields. It just feels to me like we might be in a shorter term scenario where yields can back off and maybe the equity market holds in. But man, it has been tough to get a read on this market, huh, Trevor? All this week, you know, you wake up and you get a, you feel like, man, this thing's going to really dump because it's sitting right at support, specifically the S&P. And you think any minute now, 
just one big sell order takes this whole thing down. But there it goes. It bounces, and everybody's saying, well, this is perfect situation for a bounce. And, you know, 10 minutes later, looks like we're off and running. It's 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 nothing but a bid in, in equities. And then, and then his and the hammer <laughs> comes in and puts rocket fuel in it, and you wake <laughs> up the next day, and it's back down. I, I have never been whipsawed so much in my entire life watching these markets, Tone. No, exactly. You know, it's what's incredible. I mean, you just define whipsawed. We just had 10 days in a row, Trevor, where we had an extreme tick index greater than minus 1500, which you know is one of my real market speedometers, right? That is heavy and intense selling every single day from the CPI number, right? We have a day of reprieve yesterday. And we come in today and the market looks like it wants to bounce. And out of the blue, like on the opening, without even moving the market, we see nothing but selling. Today's tick low goes in at around minus 1850. So they wailed on it again. They murdered the thing in the morning. I'm of the opinion still that if they don't get it through the low that we made before the Bank of England, they're not going to get it through this low. Like, I understand that there's going to be collateral damage and there's going to be spillover selling, you know, from all kinds of accounts that got de-risked with that move in gilts. You know, that 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 market, that selling might get absorbed down here because, you know, the, the sentiment index is pinned to extreme fear and beyond. Mm-hmm. You know, the VIX is still sitting here in the 30s. And traditionally, that's still what I want to make purchases. So we'll see what happens, but we're really lined up to have a kind of a total Costanza rally off of the June low, just because as as I tweeted out in a response this morning, I feel like everybody in the equity market, including myself, most of the day is like standing, like waiting for it, standing over the hole, waiting for the equity market to drop into the (laughs) hole and just be gone forever. You know, like that, that's what it feels like. And that's usually when you, you know, manifest a 300 point bounce out of, wait a minute, what the hell is going on? Oh, they one company beat earnings. Oh, oil's higher. So natural resources are rallying. Oh, there goes copper. So metals and mining is holding in there. Gold is bouncing off the lows. And next thing you know, the S&P is off of the bottom. So we'll see how this one plays out, Trevor. But man, this is first time stuff for me. And I am in uh, low risk, hit and run, clip your profits and get out of dodge mode. A lot of this has been the a lot of the focus lately has been on the bond market, not only just in the US, but the global bond market. And obviously the news out of the BOE yesterday, you know, lit that fire as well. Uh, and I know, you know, this the bond market is massive and complex, uh, but to have a little bit of just kind of awareness of how it works and what it's doing will help you become a better trader, better investor. And you know, you're much more in tune with what's happening there than I am. Uh, but I know you are focused on other things. But so I just want to like really kind of get your sense here about with the reaction out of the Bank of England, could we see something similar, other similar decisions being made by other central banks around the world from major countries, the Fed, uh, you know, the, the Euro, <laughs> the European Central Bank? I mean, this because it is getting here. It is testing waters. They don't want to risk right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, a bond market dislocation, Trevor, is a lot more serious, as we know, than an equity market dislocation. Right. That's a credibility issue. 
Or a housing market dislocation. Exactly. Or exactly. But at least those are kind of, you know, you can draw a circle around, you know, the source of stress. You know, S and P maybe it's earnings issues, you know what I mean? It, it could be anything, but you draw you can draw a circle around the point of stress. With this situation here and this geopolitical situation where it's you know we, we we have sabotage attacks on pipelines. We have former prime ministers being assassinated. You know you don't know where the war is or where it's coming from. The headlines are there though, right? The headlines are definitely there, as in as if we are in a wartime footing for sure. And that's how I kind of approach the markets. And that to me was what markets are telling me: volatility has spiked across all four assets, right? Whether you're trading commodities, bonds, equities, or FX. Volatility is double what it was a month ago, right? So everybody's on their toes and the market's extremely nervous. Um, you know, that's usually when there's opportunity abound. But to, to just try to frame the bond market for you, you know, we've got the twos, tens curve is still steeply inverted, right? Essentially just calling for weak economic data, potentially recessionary type of economy. We've got the bond market that is still really offered only with yields just going straight up, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of proving the point that the Fed is behind the curve in fighting inflation, right? If we get Fed funds at 4% and we got CPI at 8%, we've got a long way to go before we're going to make a dent in CPI. And I think that that's what the bond market's telling us. You know, we've got break-evens falling back lower um, through to a new low now, which is another sign of, you know, future economic weakness, deflationary action. And, you know, yet yields are still really pinned to the highs, which is causing our currency to go around the globe breaking shit, right? We broke the pound, you know, we broke the euro through par, we broke the pound to par, we broke CNY, you know, we broke the yuan to a 14-year low, right? We haven't seen these levels in the yuan since the financial crisis. So there's a lot of serious large magnitude volatility going on in the macro world that you can't take your eye off because that's what's driving the equity market. I've posed this question to a lot of people in the last few weeks, Tony, so I'll ask you the same question. Could it be that the dollar has to sleep in the bed that it's made and becomes so strong, it literally breaks itself after breaking everything else around it? Man, it sounds like you've got like a battle royale fintwit conversation <laughs> that you can have there, Trevor. You know, I, I stay on the sidelines of the dollar argument. You know, I'm I'm neither... I'm neither a dollar permable, nor am I one of those dollars losing it reserve, its reserve currency status people. I think that argument is, is out the window. Um, <clears throat> uh, I think that I, I do agree that it may, you know, it is getting what it deserves now in this endless bid. And I kind of feel like, though, it's more at the due to the weakness of the UK and the European EU, mm -hmm. quite honestly, because they're they're at the tip of this energy crisis spear. And while it's while I understand that that crisis has has sort of calmed down, Dutch TTF prices are, you know, Dutch TTF prices are thirty percent off of their highs, which is a five bagger, you know, versus the price that it used to be. So you can't really call it over when you know natural gas prices are this elevated around the world, and now you've got the geopolitical side playing out you know, with pipelines blowing up and, and countries pointing fingers at each other and nobody really knows what's going on with that, nor will we ever. So, you know, this is when it gets really, really hairy for the energy market. This is to me when the crisis is going to come bubbling back up 
And I think that people are going to, you know, once again, like they were at the beginning of the year, start reaching for hard assets and commodities versus technology and cyclicals into the end of the year. You faded a lot of your resource trading positions in the last couple months. Um, but it sounds like from what you just said, you see a buying opportunity here based on what on actually just events, events that are happening. Yeah, I am. I'm pretty, I'm, 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 I'm trying to sort of contain my bullishness of the S&P down here. I really am. I'm trying to contain it because I don't want to be over-risked if something, you know, the, the headlines that come out every morning warn you enough that you can't have massive risk on either way, right? Because they keep coming. So I de-risked, um, Trevor, because it's my job to never get anybody caught, and especially meaning my clients, caught sucking on a long position from, you know, way, way back. That is now the wrong trade, out of favor, technically broken, performing poorly, and we're still in it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's my job to pick the point that says, okay, we had a huge P&L, a huge run. Um, we are at a point where we're at a drawdown from our high watermark, and this is where I want to get out. That, that's how all of my winning trades go. That's how all of my um, tactical trading goes. And once they get to that level, I have to respect it. The reason I'm fine doing that is because I'm a trader and I can buy it back the next morning if I want to. Right. So now I've had a clear head for the last several days with very little equity risk on the one, the one trade that I've got on marathon petroleum still performing. It was the best performing stock in the S and P yesterday. And uh, excuse me, the fourth or fifth best performing stock in the S&P yesterday. But it allows me to, to think clearly, right? I've got some tactical shorts on. I've got to manage that. I want to be in this natural resources trade because it's so oversold based on fundamentals that it's not even funny. You know, Jeff Curry came out this morning and you know, I've been looking for him for a month now. But Jeff Curry from Goldman came out this morning is like oil is still extremely tight. The right price is 85 to 95. And as you can see, we're on our way there. You know, so that's why I still think that there's upside in natural resources. I had to clear the pad out because I'm the last guy that's going to get caught long during a crash, man. Yeah. Everything in natural resource seems really tight right now. You mentioned oil. Uh, I have never seen a time where inventory of base metals are since so low, but yet continue to get sold off in the fear. Uh, that's something to be said. And now there's word that we are going to remove a lot of Russian produced metals from the LME as well. That was a news headline you and I saw this morning, making inventories even that much more more tight or tighter, whatever. But it's 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 almost as if it, I mean the green light is flashing in front of your eyes as bright as it ever could, like you're staring into the sun. Yeah. And yet there's still this fear out there that people don't want to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like, man, we are in the commodity world, aren't we? Because that that's a that's a commodity, you know, that's a commodity. A commodity trader knows that feeling where markets can be tight and and extremely, extremely dear, hard to get your hands on physical, and the price goes down. <laughs> right so that that's like you know the disconnect that everybody noticed all the way out to OPEC Prince Abdulaziz who said right he notices an extreme disconnect between the physical and paper markets he's over there raising prices every single month sequentially to his asian clients and the fucking price on the exchange is getting cratered in his face 
right? And I'm sure his Asian clients are going, um, it's $80 over on the mercantile exchange. And I'm sure he's saying, go buy it from him and have him ship it over. Genius. Yeah. Right? So, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where everybody knows that the real price is higher. Paper markets are lower. Um, you know, it's getting caught up a little bit in, in, you know, I would say, and I'm only saying a little bit in the spec trade because open interest is still nosediving, Trevor, right? So if open interest is still nosediving, there's no spec long out there that, you know, has to pitch 10,000 crude contracts on a stop loss type of position that usually sends the thing seven to $10 lower before you figure out what the fuck happened, right? So, you know, if that's the case, then the oil market is eventually going to find an equilibrium physical markets will start driving them again. The tightness, the backwardation will widen out again and spot price will have to go up. But I wanted to ask you what you thought, um, you know, on that, on that LME idea, you know, what if it, what if it's Russia saying, you know what, we're pulling every ounce of metal out of Europe that we can pull, including every ounce that we've got on the LME. Right. What if, what if they're saying, you know, we're taking our ball and going away? If we, you know, maybe Putin realized that we're a big chunk of LME inventories across the board here. Right. It's an exchange, you know, coming out of the crisis from that nickel blow up that it had last year. And Putin is, you know, still in the business of trying to collect rubles for natural resources. Just thinking out loud, you know what I mean? Not everything is what it seems. You know, the LME is a statement about their side of the trade, but it doesn't, you know, they may have said uh, Russia's pulling every ounce of metal that they have out of here and have to come up with a statement on it. You know, who the hell knows? We're at war, so I don't take anything at face value anymore. I mean, my first thought would be it's just another line item in the series of deglobalization, the East versus the West. Uh I, if, if that was their their strategy here to remove their own metals from the exchanges and not providing of it to Europe or to the rest of the West, I don't think there's enough demand to even get those rubles to what they would get. China, I mean, look where China is look where China is economically. There is no demand there. Yeah, China. that's true. That's a good point. And India is not India is not going to be buying their nickel. Or I mean, maybe it's some of their aluminum, but they're basically would be cutting off. They'd be cutting their demand off in, you know, ginormous. You know, good. That's why I'm. That's why I'm glad I bounced my thesis off you. Maybe it's dumber than I thought. I I mean, it's not dumb, but honestly, people make crazy, crazy decisions, and when it comes to geopolitical tensions like this, I mean, and honestly, I don't know if. It's not that crazy because I think we're about to. I, it, sometimes it feels like we're going to see the next crazy decision. We're going to wake up and see something absolutely bonkers happen again. Yeah, that's kind of where we feel. I was, oh, yeah. uh, I was having, a, I had a conversation um, with a good uh, friend of mine. Our sons play on the same soccer team, and he's originally from Congo. And him and I were having a discussion the other night just about how, just how tense the world is right now. All around. Oh, a hundred percent, you know, across the board, you know, we mean, we're having bond dislocations, right? Trevor, that like tells that the whole story to me, the bank of England had to step in and supply liquidity for the guilt market because rates were flying in their face, right? They come through with the Draghi, Mario Draghi, whatever it takes moment. Okay. Boom. Here's the low and guilt. 
and 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 now we have to see you know first the collateral damage and then how the world comes out of that but i don't know did you read jared dillian's piece the one pager yeah so i wanted to ask you about this we're going to have jared on early next week it just confirmed with him um we got to let this storm pass uh but we're going to have jared jared on next week uh for people who don't uh, subscribe to the daily dirt nap he put out a one page basically why he's incredibly bullish gold. I mean, he's been go- bullish gold for 10 years now, it seems like, or longer, 20, 20. 20. <laughs> but but the, it had ramifications because in the Navigator, your publication, it obviously hit home for you, and we're welcoming you back to the bold gold ring now. Uh, yeah, yeah, man, I'm in. You know, I, I uh, for me, it's more of, the world is going batshit crazy and the thing that you, the currency that you cling to as an insurance policy that you want to be low volatility just went on fire sale, right? So I'm not, I'm not looking for gold to perform as much, you know, like if I'm thinking now, like if I'm thinking like, you know, I'd like to go out and buy some physical gold, you know, $200 cheaper than the last, you know, couple of months that it's been trading. And you get to a level on the screens and in GDX where, okay, what's my downside from here, right? It's just like, I feel like the hedge just went on sale and fell in your lap, right? And I feel like with the world changing the way it is now, I think I'm now this position is going to be challenged for sure, because for gold to work, real rates are going to have to go down, Mm -hmm. right? That's counter to a little bit of my thesis that commodity inflation is going to keep upward pressure on rates. So this is a little bit of a hedge to what I've had on at a much lower price than the last time, right? I'm usually, I like this because I'm usually buying gold stocks on momentum when they break lines and break moving averages. This is a lot different. We're buying them on their back here. We're buying them on a 50% off sale from the highs. And they're, they're starting to get into that throwing out the baby with the bathwater type of feel. So you know, I just think this is something where you can put some money into this here. You can put some money into physical gold here and have that be a lower volatility part of your portfolio than the natural resources, you know, Wild West game that we're in the middle of now being long natural resources and short home builders and short tech like I am. So, yeah, there it is, man, an opportunity to buy, you know, a physical commodity on, on at a cheap level. I like Jared's conviction, too, man. If you noticed, he's made two calls that he's pulled out of his ass that have mostly been on about his unbelievable ability to read sentiment, right? Energy was on a frozen rope higher and he was in the weeds with eye black and he came out one day and he was like, that's it. It's unsustainable. I've seen all the signs that I can see that energy going higher is unsustainable. The Federal Reserve came out the next day with hawkish posture and energy collapsed 30% in a straight line. So I'm a little bit going with a hot hand here, right? Because even when he said that energy was done, I made some sales based on that, you know, and I like to make sales and things when they're screaming away from moving averages. And I always write about it that way. When you're high-fiving with one hand, make sure you're taking profit with the other hand. So I let some stock out there and I still didn't even sell enough because the slide was so steep. And I'm calling him up. I'm like, what the fuck did you know? And it was just that he nailed the sentiment timing of it perfectly. It lined up with the FOMC, and that was the end of the energy rally. Don't have any, none coming out of the taps. 
doesn't matter, bro. The trade was over. Right? That's how the trade ends. The trade ends with that. Not, not you know, barreling out, you know, when everybody's pouring out into the lows. That's not when the trade ends. That's when the dum-dums get out. There's a big difference. Right. Right. Well, this move by the Bank of England was the solidifying point from him. Uh, in fact, I read that one pager. And, I, you know, I knew it was an event. When I saw the news, I knew it was an event. And I knew it could continue to spur or, you know, go into other decision making by central banks around the world. But it solidified that idea that this is yield curve control. And we haven't talked about yield curve control in, God, a year if not longer, but here it is right at our doorstep. And a year ago, yield curve control was going to be the catalyst that gold, that got gold back up and moving again. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, you gotta, if you smell, if Jared smells that this is going to be the, you know, de-rigger move for the central banks, you know, that's not a game that I can that I can play at all. I don't, you know, I don't gain my positions based off central bank activity, but when it rhymes and jives with, you know, the scenario that we were in a year ago and when the, the technicals offer an opportunity and a sale like they're offering now, and it's already so hard to figure out where to put your money from here for the rest of the year, that lines up as a good option to me, right? Trevor, what do you think? Like if you had to put your money in technology, in gold stocks or in oil and natural gas stocks from now to the end of the year, what would you do? Day one today, performance starts today to D31. What would you do? What do you pick? Right now I'm picking gold and nickel. That's, well, that's you're, you're, you, always, you always pick nickel. You'd pick nickel if it was your last day on earth. But my point is <laughs> right, like, between those three – I'm bullish as hell and oil and gas, but I don't know that it performs through the yesterday year. I'd rather sit here with some gold that may do nothing just to find out. So that's my thought. I did did take on a position in a company, a Canadian oil and gas company uh, earlier this week that was beaten up a little bit, but still provides a very decent dividend. So basically Mm -hmm. I was getting uh, an 8% dividend on this thing. Nice. So... I did buy that, but because of the dividend, because of the value behind it. Yeah. Right. And there's value there. There's value there. I mean, you look at this. We're talking about taking Russian aluminum off of the LME and Century Aluminum is trading uh, six bucks. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you said it before, <laughs> like they're teed up. They're, they're dirt cheap. They're, they're set up for success and they are sitting right there for you to buy all you want on the last sale on the screen, right? So. Um, this is this to me is another trade though that that is one of those that you have an eye on at six and take your eye off and next thing you know base metals rally and you look up and Century Aluminum is thirteen bid and you're like oh man I never bought it because it wouldn't move from six dollars right and next thing you know it's up and gone so that that I wouldn't be shocked at Alcoa thirty four dollar item was a hundred dollars earlier this year that's a nice fire sale right if you want to find one <laughs> these stocks are insane. They're insane, and they haven't seen the light of day because the market's still pricing in cyclical depression. Right, right, right. TG, pleasure to have you back on, my friend. I know it was a kind of a whirlwind of a conversation, but honestly, it was a whirlwind of a week. So why not just end yeah, the same way we started, man? No argument, man. It is uh, head on a swivel, as they say, is the only way to survive, Trevor. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, have yourself a great weekend. Uh, enjoy yourself. Take care of the family. We'll talk to you again in the next coming weeks. And you, brother. Well done, Trevor. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, we are back here with the uh, second segment of our Friday long-form episode here on Mining Stock Daily. Welcoming in a new guest to the listeners, somebody who's never been on the podcast before, but I did have the uh, privilege to meet David Finch, CEO of Ixios Asset Management, earlier this spring while we were both in Frankfurt at the uh, German Gold Show. Uh, it took a little time to get David on uh, the podcast, no fault of his, mostly of my own. Uh, David, thanks so much for your time today. That's a pleasure. Good to uh, talk to you. I, I, you know, I think we should get some, a few pleasantries out of the way and really have a quick discussion about Ixios Asset Management, what it is you do. I know you manage a couple of funds, uh, specifically, you know, timely enough on the gold and also on battery metals, but kind of give us a general feel of the company here. Yeah, okay. So we're uh, we're kind of boutique asset management company. Um, we used to be part of uh, a subsidiary of BNP Paribas. Uh, we did a management buyout um, of the company in uh, November last year. So we're now an kind of independent asset manager. Um, and our two largest funds are um, a precious metals fund and um, a battery metals fund called uh, Ixios Energy Metals. So... Uh, and both of the funds, they're, they're you know, they're European mutual funds. Uh, uh, they have around a uh, uh, hundred million dollars in, in each fund. So, um, and you know, our pitch to investors is really that we, <coughs> you know, we're, we're we're not here to buy Barrick and Newmont uh, in the gold fund or to buy. Uh, you know Rio or BHP in the in the battery metals fund. We're we're really looking at uh, to try and identify the emerging stars and the uh, uh, the small and mid cap stocks which are going to become uh, which are either going to get acquired or, or which are going to be the um, uh, you know the big growth stocks of, of the future. Do you go as early as exploration and discovery, or are you more into the development type? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, in fact, we, we have a little bit of a barbell approach, uh, and we have had since, uh, well, for about a year now, where, um, you know, at the top end, we have uh, uh, mid-cap producers, um, and at the other end, we have um, uh, explorers. Uh, and we've we've kind of avoided the development space, given the uncertainties about uh, capital costs of, of of development in the in, in in the very short term. And you know, I think that that's well, that's worked out reasonably well. I mean, so you know, we haven't lost uh, a lot of money in the developers. I mean, we found lots of interesting and creative ways to lose money in 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 other stocks, but. Uh, 
but that that that's something we kind of saw coming the cost inflation of development um but uh you know and i think <clears throat> now developers have um you know probably more than priced in uh the problems uh to do with capital cost inflation and and so we're starting to look at some of the developers now oh do, do you kind of feel that the capital cost due to inflation uh there was a little contagion that kind of went through the developing markets here for miners you know nobody has been safe for months now but for sure because it's real right and um uh, you know, you've seen that with a with, with a ton of companies, um, and you know some of them maybe you know to 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 affect financings. They've been they've been knowingly kind of understating the cost of 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 of, of developing a mine, and um, they've kind of been found out, and uh, and others quite genuinely, you know, were just taken by surprise by the speed and the. But by, by, by the speed of cost inflation and and uh, by also the extension of uh, of timelines for delivery and um, you know time is money in this business and um, yeah you know I think a lot of people got caught out and and <clears throat> you know it, it, it's it's understandable I, you know I, I don't think uh, you can necessarily uh, criticize them for it. Um, it's just stuff that happened, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do want to table the precious metals and the precious metal miners explorers here for just a bit and focused on battery metals here, David. Um, you know, it's been an, a really inter- interesting space. You know, metals like lithium continue to kind of, the, the, the prices of lithium continue to be fairly high historically right now uh and lithium equities continue to be you know i would say outperforming majority of the resource market lately especially in the mining space uh but something like copper uh, obviously has not done very well and we've seen that uh, really struggle with a slide in growth narrative throughout the global markets um you know, can, how do you balance the the different types of narratives within this battery metals slash base metal complex here, and where are we at now in this cycle? Yeah, look, it's a very good question, and um, I think that that uh, I guess there's two things to say about that. Uh, the first thing is that um, you know, lithium is a battery metal. It, it it doesn't have many other uses, right? I mean, I think 5% of lithium goes into ceramics or something, right? So it, it it's pretty much a pure play battery metal. And of course, you know, some of that's consumer electronics batteries and some of it's EV batteries. And and, and, and obviously, as, as time goes on, the, the percentage is moving very heavily towards EV batteries. Um, whereas copper, um, you know, it's used in a ton of, you know, it's used in bit, everything from you know, washing machines to, to, to buildings to whatever. So, you know, copper it, it for sure is, 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 is a less pure play, uh, for the time being on, um, on the energy transition, although it's an absolutely crucial metal and, and, and what you've seen, uh, and I think, sorry, my, the, the second point to, 
to be very clear about is that uh, uh, copper is a, a financial asset because there are you know widely traded and liquid futures on it. So it's easy for uh, macro funds to express a bearish view on the economy by shorting copper. Uh, they can't really do that on lithium, and uh, you know lithium. F- although people are trying to launch futures on it, is is not a financial commodity for the time being. So you've seen uh, lithium, uh, you know, six sp- percent spodumene and carbonate and hydroxide are all at f- sort of uh, multi-year highs, and 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 copper um, quite clearly is not. Um, I, and I think a lot of the sell down in um and copper and nickel and, and and zinc has been driven by um by financial investors uh and you can kind of see that in the way that um global stocks at at uh, at, at uh, accredited warehouses pretty much at all time lows mm-hmm. i was going to i was going um, i was going to ask you if you've ever seen a time when inventories for these metals were so low, but yet the price continued yeah, to I decline. Yeah, I mean, incredibly low. But you know, <clears throat> when you can when you can short copper and you can put up, I don't know, I don't know what the margin is on a copper futures contract. It's probably two or three percent. You know, you, you can, you know, if you're a multi-billion hedge fund, you can short a ton of copper, right? Yeah. You can have a real impact on the marginal price of copper. Um, you can't do that on lithium and. Um, yeah, you know it is what it is, and uh, you know the, the the you know the price of of of, uh, of these widely used metals is set in the very very short term, and it's set by finance. The price of copper is set by financial markets, and you know you can argue till you're blue in the face that there's going to be a shortage of copper in two or three years' time, but if there's going to be a surplus next month. Uh, the price is going to go down, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and kind of that's what's happened. Do you think? Like, uh, but you... you know, I think that creates fantastic opportunities for somebody who's got a two or three year view on what's going to happen to the copper supply demand curve. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff to buy. Do you feel lithium might have its moment in the sun uh, with a financial market behind it, well structured financial market? Look, you know, what I think about lithium is that, uh, and the reason why it's performing so well is there's a short-term shortage, right? And it and it comes back to the, you know, the kind of short, the short term, what's happening in the economy now versus what you think is going to happen in three years' time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, lithium is in very, very short supply. Um, and, you know, as we all know, I mean, you know, there's no structural shortage of lithium. Um, there's, there's, you know, it, 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 it's a, it's a very common element in the Earth's crust, and um, you know, I think that uh, in time that that shortage will be solved. Um, and you know, whether there, there are a ton of lithium projects around, uh, but they are going to take probably. Uh, you know, I think from 2026 onwards, we're we're going to start to see a big increase in supply. Um, it depends a little bit what happens on the demand side, but 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 you you can see that in the medium term, 
that there will be a supply-demand balance in lithium, uh, which will mean that, you know, the, 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 you can't extrapolate the current strong rise in lithium, you know, over the next uh, three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, that's not the case for copper. Um, I think that, you know, the, the development timelines for copper mines, which tend to be large and very capital intensive, is much, much longer. And um, nobody told the mining industry 10 years ago that, <laughs> that we were going to have the energy transition, so they, they, they haven't prepared for it. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, we recently in our funds, we've been reducing our, our lithium exposure a bit and, uh, and reallocating to, um, to copper miners who mm. have decent kind of production growth prospects in regards to copper with i want to focus this question on really the global macro narrative happening now um you know we are recording this wednesday evening uh, and we have seen the bank of england come out and uh try to backstop uh its debt market a little bit here. Some are calling it yield curve control. I, you know, I would say it's not far from it. Uh, but there is a little bit of panic uh, behind its bond market. And I, I think it's easily to say there's potentially a little bit of panic globally in the global bond market. Um, but it doesn't necessarily seem like one central bank, specifically the Bank of England coming in, is saying, you know, this is it. This is where we're going to start supporting supporting market, supporting growth. It just seems like a, a temporary band-aid on a bigger wound here. So I, and with that on the backdrop of copper, which really is stimulated with growth, um, you know, is it is it time to get bullish copper again? Or do you still have a lot of headwinds on the global economy that has some concerns? Yeah, look, um, you know, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not going to pretend to be a macroeconomist, um, but, uh, you know, I think what the Bank of England uh, was concerned about, uh, in my view, was the solvency of, of UK pension funds, which have a huge exposure to, to gilts, and particularly what we call defined benefit pension funds, which is pension funds which have promised to pay out a certain amount of, a fixed amount of money or even an inflation-linked uh, uh, amount of money to um, uh, to pensioners, and uh, you know they have those guys um, because they have sterling liabilities. They have a huge exposure to the UK bond market to match their liabilities with sterling-based fixed interest. And you know, with the, the huge collapse in the gilt market, um, there was the potential for some of these uh, pension funds to become insolvent and. Um, you know, the pensioners of these defined benefit funds are mostly kind of middle class, ex, ex uh, middle man, retired middle managers who are natural conservative voters. You know, and uh, the idea of uh, their pension fund turning up and saying, "Look, we told we told you we would pay you X, and we're going to pay you uh, half X." Um, you know, um, yeah. It, it's not something that they could contemplate. And so uh, I, I think it suddenly became uh, 
incumbent upon them to 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 really try and uh, put a line in the sand on the gilt market, and, and so that's what they're trying to do. Um, and you know, I've, so it it's kind of they were trying to manage the secondary consequences of the the big fall in the value of fixed interest securities, which which had been seen as. Uh, you know, risk-free uh, investments. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think there's a very similar uh, kind of uh, thing which will roll out in Europe and, you know, in time in in the States. And uh, although central banks have wanted to raise interest rates to crush inflation, um, we're beginning to realise that the secondary consequences of that are perhaps unacceptable for society. And, um, you know, um, yeah, just, just, uh, uh, try and try, try, try and manage that rather than have a kind of societal meltdown. And, uh, so, you know, it, I mean, and I think that that's why gold jumped so strongly, uh, today, because yeah. as we're talking, I think gold, I, mean, I haven't looked at the screen for an hour or so, but sort of earlier on today, it was up nearly 2%. Uh, and I think, you know, people are finally realising that uh, the central bank's crusade against inflation has got its limits because the secondary effects are, you know, sometimes going to be unacceptable. Uh, I, I believe your microphone did did head out, so we're getting a, a different source now. That's no big deal because you're coming in nice and clean, but just wanted to recognize that for everybody listening. Not a big okay. deal, but that's, this is a good transition to focus on gold. Listen, that that news out of the Bank of England basically triggered an everything rally. In fact, futures last night in Asia looked horrible. Um, I mean, looked like it was it looked like it was just going to dump. Uh, however, news came out of Bank of England, and now it was that little glimpse of hopium that you know filtered through the rest of the global economy. The everything rally was back on, with the exception of the dollar, which finally is seeing a pullback. Um, you know, but in regards to gold, I mean, is this the trigger that people will see as getting back into that one monetary metal? That is your safe haven once again. Well, <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> um, right. But, you know, um, I, I think it's, um, it, it, it should be, you know, uh, and I think that, you know, most uh, holders of gold have been disappointed about performance of gold during this uh, strong inflationary period and, 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 in a way, technically, it's understandable because real interest rates, uh, you know, have gone you know, as real interest rates, as defined by the bond market, um, you know, have gone 10-year US real interest rates have gone from minus 1.2 to plus, uh, you know, 1.5, 1.7, actually, I think, today. Um, so, you know, you've had a huge rise in real interest rates. Uh, and I think psychologically, more importantly as well, you've had a huge rise in nominal rates. So, you know, if you can get a 4% yield on a two-year treasury versus gold, which doesn't give you a yield, you know, I mean, you can understand that people have, people have sold gold. Um, 
But uh, I think this might be the turning point. And I think that, you know, what's, what's interesting is, is, is when you look at the numbers of who has bought the gold that all these macro funds have been selling or shorting. And, um, you know, the answer is China. Um, when I put out a tweet the other day just showing that uh, China in August had bought, I think it was like 180,000 kilograms of, had imported 180,000 kilograms of gold, which is about $10.5 billion mm. worth. Um, certainly we thought we don't have all the, all the, the Q, obviously we don't have the Q3 central bank figures, but in Q2 emerging market central banks were huge buyers of gold. Um, and, uh, I think that what's happened, uh, with the sanctions on Russia has been a huge wake up call for, uh, non-aligned central banks. And, uh, you know, what's happened for Russia is basically their reserves in U in U.S. treasuries, which they didn't have much left. They sold them down mostly, but they, they did have a significant part of their reserves in European bonds. You know, all those have been sanctioned, right? So they can't realize them. They don't have the physical certificates. You know, it's all an electronic register. So, mm -hmm. you know, it can just be kind of crossed out or frozen. Um, uh, and that means that I think for central banks, that the part of your reserves that you hold in uh, the bonds issued by other nations, uh, their your ability to realize those reserves depends on your geopolitical relationships with those countries that issued the bonds. And that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of unacceptable. And um, mm -hmm. whereas when you hold your reserves in gold, in physical gold, which you hold in your own vaults, in your own country, you can sell that to anybody uh, in any currency, in any place in the world, um, you know, because gold is very valuable, it's, it's, it's relatively small quantities, they're worth a lot. You can put it in a plane and you can fly it to wherever you want. And, um, you know, I think, I think we're seeing a, a sea change in central banks' attitudes to uh, what they hold their reserves in. And, and, and quite frankly, the, the, there isn't much else. You know, they can own a bit of platinum or palladium or whatever, but those are not very deep markets, whereas the, the market in physical gold is, mm -hmm. is, is, is very deep, liquid, transparent. And, um, you know, uh, it's not a short-term catalyst, but I think, you know, over the next two or three years, you're going to see central banks, um, particularly in non-aligned nations. And it, it was interesting to see that in Q2, the biggest buyer of gold among the emerging markets was the was the Iranian central bank. Um, you know, if you didn't want to be a prisoner, a geopolitical prisoner uh, as a central bank of a sovereign nation, you need to hold a big chunk of your reserves in gold. I, I want to f ask you about the big gold producers. Yeah, uh, you you spend a lot of time uh, on this group of uh, in the production cycle. Uh, if you go back and look at your Twitter account here the last couple of weeks, you don't paint a very rosy picture here. And I don't blame you. Uh, margins have obviously been cut industry-wide. Uh, 
inputs continue to rise and shareholders continue to sell. What's gonna say? What's gonna save this industry right now? Is it gonna be a move back up in the gold price, or yeah. is it gonna be input costs coming back down? Why yeah. do you, you know, is it? Any, are these are these companies even investable? Well, look, I mean, I think that you know, every time we get a we get a correction in the in the gold price, uh, uh, it reminds us that um, you know, gold mining is the worst business on the planet, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so if if you if you you set out with a blank uh, sheet of paper and you said, you know, what are the characteristics of businesses I don't want to invest in? You know, the gold mining sector would tick all those boxes. So, um, you know, you 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 have you have no control over your costs uh, or very limited control. Obviously, you have no control over your selling price. Um, so effectively, you have very little control over your margins, um, and uh, you know you 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 really are um, relative to other mining companies in in copper or nickel or whatever. You have very short mine lives, so um, uh, you know the you know the average life of a of a copper mine i think is 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 25 years the average life of a gold mine uh is 7 years um so on on top of not having any cost control or pricing power uh you also have the the need to reinvest constantly to uh extend uh or you know to preserve uh the existence of of, of your company and um you know, when the gold price is going up, nobody kind of cares about that. When the gold price is going down, uh, it, it really comes home in spades uh, in, in investors' minds. Uh, so now, you know, we have the gold mining sector. Uh, it's probably trading, um, if you exclude Newmont, which is kind of trading on a, a big, big premium, uh, you probably have the sector, the producing sector, trading on about 0.6 times um price to net asset value net asset value being the the net present value of future cash flows using spot gold um and we've never seen it valued so lowly um so uh, uh, and when you look um at what the gold mining companies have done in terms of capital allocation uh, which is that you know, kind of when you don't control your your input costs, you don't control your sale prices. You've got no pricing power. The only weapon that you've got is how you control your capital allocation, and that you can control. And I think the large gold miners have done a pretty good job on that. Uh, so you know, you now have Newmont and Barrick yielding more than five percent, uh, which kind of we never ever see, right? We, you know, I mean, you know, in previous cycles, you know, yields on gold mines have peaked at kind of one percent or something. You know, and now we've got five percent yield. So, you know, we're we're almost up there with the yield on 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 Rio and PHP, which is which which is great. Um, I think a lot of the the, the smaller and mid cap producers have not quite got the message, uh, and they're still. Pretty focused on um, on growth, 
and they're still focused on kind of building new minds, right? And I, mm-hmm. I, I think there's, a, there's kind of existential question, right? Is the aim of a gold miner to uh, produce more gold or, or to produce as much gold as they can over as long a period as they can? Or is the aim of a gold miner to produce the best returns they can for shareholders? And, you know, the, the, those two options, that you, there's a crossing point um, when the gold price is going up. <laughs> um, you, know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when gold's in a strong bull market and everybody thinks it's going up forever, um, you know, maximizing production uh, over the medium term, you know, look, looks like a good option. Uh, but the gold price is cyclical, let's face it. And, and when the gold price is coming down, uh, you need to think a little bit uh, about how you allocate capital and whether increasing production or or sustaining production over a longer period is the best option for shareholders. And, you know, I, th- I think that um, what gold miners are perhaps not so good at, particularly the, the, the smaller ones, is thinking about um, the, 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 the equation between if we invest the money in building this mine or building a new mine or building an extension or whatever they're going to do, what's the return on capital going to be? And what's the return on capital of our existing business? using the share price as the cost of capital. And, um, you know, I think that um, you, you need to do that calculation and you need to have the gut sometimes to say, actually, given the uncertainties about the cost of building new mines or, or you know, capital projects, and given the uncertainty about the gold price, and given the returns that we're currently making on our existing capital, it makes much more sense to buy back shares than to build a new mine. Um, and, you know, I know that's controversial and, and, you know, a lot of managements are allergic to that kind of thinking. But, um, and, and and you've seen, um, I think Elliot's been putting pressure on, on Kinross, who, who finally agreed to do kind of share buyback, right? <laughs> um, right. But, you know, it, 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 it's something that, you know, given the lack of pricing power, the lack of control of costs, capital allocation is is the biggest management tool for creating value in the gold mining sector. And I think managements, they often underestimate that. So, um, you know, making an acquisition, uh, embarking on a development project where you don't kind of know really what the costs are going to be, yeah, maybe it's better to use that money to, to 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 buy back your own shares, which are offering a phenomenal free cash flow yield at the moment. And um, you know, certainly, I mean, I've been talking to a number of the companies that we own, <laughs> trying to trying to persuade them to buy back shares. Um, and you know, actually, well, one of them, one of the smaller ones that we own, is actually you know, seen sense and decided to do it. Um, uh, and uh, and Ian Precious Metals, um, which has got a cash balance, which at one point last week 
was superior to its market capitalization. So it valued mm. existing operations as zero. Uh, I mean, when, when, when you get to that situation, you're crazy if you don't buy back your shares, right? Um, yeah, but yeah. there are a lot of producers which, you know, which have very, um, you know, Centera. I mean, Centera has got an EV of 100 and, I can't remember what it is, 150 million Canadian dollars. They've got $700 million of cash. They should be buying back their shares. They should, you know, it, it, it's, it's crazy for them to be thinking about embarking on a highly risky uh, uh, series of acquisitions, even at the discounted prices which developers trade out today. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. Yes, let me ask you uh, a, a question that regarding controversy and the discussion of buying back shares. And I know Sandstorm Gold is not a gold producer. They are a royalty company. Uh, news this week that uh, for an $80 million bot deal financing for one of the larger gold royalty companies out on the market right now. And I believe this is also happening as they are concluding or in the middle of a share buyback program as well. Uh, this really uh, caught the, this market completely off guard uh, and was very controversial as re- as you can just go on Twitter regarding Sandstorm Gold and get an idea of how people feel about it. What are your thoughts on <laughs> what are your thoughts on this bot deal for a royalty yeah. company that's supposed to be cash flowing and buying back their shares? Yeah. I mean it seems pretty crazy to me, you know. I mean I think, you know, the temptation in the you know, and Sandstorm has always been um you know, a company which is engaged in significant amounts of, of financial engineering. Um and uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense. I mean, you know, we're, we're not invested in the company, so I haven't looked at it in any great detail. But um, yeah, on the face of it, it doesn't. I can understand that shareholders are a bit upset about this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, uh, and I think it's the same for um, you know a lot of. You know, so some companies going ahead with raising cash for. I mean, you saw what happened to Marathon, right? Mm-hmm. They decided to go ahead and do a big equity financing uh, at a time when the market was, uh, you know, kind of allergic to development projects, and and you know that had a catastrophic effect on their share price. And I and I think that you know sometimes the management of gold mining companies are are. Um, I don't know whether they're naive or whether they they don't really understand the capital markets or how the capital markets will react to what they're doing. But um, you know, sometimes I think in a in a highly cyclical business, uh, you can actually say, "Okay, we're going to wait. We're not going to do anything." And you've seen, I mean. Um, I mean, a good example is uh, Silver Lake, which is an Australian kind of mid-cap gold producer. Um, As the gold price fell and the costs of mining in Australia, particularly labor costs, were were big labor cost inflation in Australia, they just said, okay, well, you know, some of these marginal kind of low-grade open pits which we're trucking to our mill, 
we're just going to stop mining them mm-hmm. because they're not generating free cash flow. Uh, so we're going to reduce our guidance. Um, those houses stay in the ground, and we'll mine them when things get better. And, and that seems to me, you know, uh, a, a, a rational way to, to behave. Right? And of course, the market hated it when they announced it, but, you know, what do you want to do? You know, right. it, it, is it a good idea to carry on mining ounces which are going to produce negative free cash flow? No, no, it's not a good idea. So the best thing is to say, okay, we're going to stop that. We're going to cut those costs. And, uh, you know, when the gold price goes up, maybe we'll start mining this stuff again. Yeah. Well, into the same uh, an equal story, Monarch Mining put out news this week that they are suspending operations at the Beaufort Mine. I'm uh, putting that on care and maintenance just due to the financial and operational challenges. Uh, that yeah, company, I saw that. Yeah. That company is now a $7 million market cap company. Um, but let me ask you about timing. When you start seeing producers suspend operations and go on care and maintenance, in your experience, is that any sort of a contrarian sign that things are about to turn? Well, <laughs> I'd like to think so. <laughs> oh, I would too. <laughs> let's let's hope so. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's hope so. Um, I mean, you kind of think that that would, you know, supply and demand in the gold mining industry is not really a big metric, but unlike in in, in base metals, which are actually consumed. But uh, um, you know, I, I I think it is interesting that uh, you know that there are a number of of, of marginal producers which are starting to, um, yeah, you know, and particularly in the silver space, right, right. where AICs are, are very, very high, uh, there's a lot of companies that should be stopping producing, right? Mm-hmm. The silver at 18 bucks, there's, there's a lot of companies with AICs, not talking about all-in costs, but AICs, you know, above that level. And you know, and of course, you know, for, you know, I, I, I don't want to simplify the situation. You know, if you if you if you stop mining and you fire your workforce, when the silver price goes up again, you know, you know, you may not be able to get those guys back again, and and uh, and there may be an arguable case for continuing to to, to run operations at a loss for a short period of time until the silver price goes back up again. Um, so as not to, you know, lose your your labor mm-hmm. and experience capital, uh, but that can't go on forever. Um, so yeah, you know, it is what it is. These are very challenging times. I think for 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 all mining companies, but particularly for precious metals companies, and particularly for silver mining companies. And uh, but. You know, I do think that uh, those challenges have been pretty efficiently priced by the equity market. Um, and you can see today, you know, um, you know, you get a, you get a bit of a, a short-term rally in the gold and silver price. And, uh, 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 and given the current valuation of, uh, of the sector, uh, you know, you have a, uh, 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 you know, a very, very big reaction in the share prices of the of the producers, and 
you know, if from a macroeconomic point of view, you think that gold and silver, you know, if gold can go back to 1900 or 2000 and silver can go back to 23 or 24, you know, there's massive upside in, in, uh, in the sector. It is times like these where you find those five, 10, 15 baggers. If you have the fortitude to buy when nobody else is buying and mainly selling. Yeah. So we yeah. will see. I, I'm optimistic that maybe this is the turning point, but I'm not quite sure what that confirmation is going to be because the macro backdrop is still pretty gloomy out there. But uh, David, I hope that you and I can follow up once again in the, uh, coming months and, and really see how the rest of the year is played out with the precious metals and the mining sector. But again, thanks for your time. I know you're overseas and so it's pretty late for you. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to talk to you, Trevor. Yeah, David Finch from Ixios X Asset Management. You can find him over at Twitter with at David F-I underscore and uh, it's worthwhile. It's a good follow for uh, all you mining junkies out there. All right, everybody, that's a wrap here from us on the podcast this week. We'll be back Monday morning with the morning briefing. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.